Infatuated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And it has been a big week here in Flatford. <laughs> it has. God, I feel like so much has happened I know. since the last time we recorded. <laughs> so first off, big clink clink, Emily. I started my PhD. Woo, congratulations. <laughs> How does it feel? It feels good. I had my first meeting and I've already got all the ideas and inspiration and stuff even though it was just it was kind of like an admin meeting yeah but I still got a bunch of ideas from it which I think is a good sign and I've essentially just been told to read for three months and I'm like I feel like I've trained for this moment so <laughs> <laughs> like, my assignment is to read yeah a lot it's like like 12 books in three months like, I can do that that's fine <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, obviously it's all online. So like, it's a shame I can't like meet the other people. Yeah, I think he's got six like PhD students are all doing like gothicy stuff. So oh, you could be such a cute little gothic group. Yeah, I mean they've been very welcoming on like Twitter and emails and stuff. So like, and I think we'll be doing you know like virtual like meetups and stuff. So I'm sure it'll be good. It's just a shame I can't like go meet them all basically. Yeah. But yeah, very excited. I'm glad I'm finally started. But that's not the only exciting news. No, it's not. <laughs> so, well, first of all, I got my marks back from my master's dissertation yes. and A's all the way. Woohoo! Woohoo! So that was exciting. <laughs> but, like, we knew that. We did know that. <laughs> we know that. We knew that was going to happen. But the big news that I got this week was that I was shortlisted for the deep breath <laughs> Queen Mary Wasafiri New Writing Poetry Prize. Judged by Raymond Antrobus. Yay! Which really just means I'm getting published. <laughs> That's so good. A poem that I wrote, someone wants to publish it. I shit you not, I'm not going to get tired of saying that. <laughs> I'm like obnoxiously happy about it. So. Yeah, well you should be. It's also like my favourite one that yeah. I've ever written. That's it's good. like, it's inspired by Sabrina Benham, obviously, who's like my poetry god. <laughs> so... Yeah, I'm just very happy that this is the first one that gets to go out into the world. Yeah, that's true. Also, this is not our news, but I feel like it's important news. Mm. Louise Gluck has just won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Oh yeah, I saw that. And she is a poet who I've not stopped writing about all year through my masters. (laughs) She's like such a badass and she's really had to like claw her way to credibility because she writes about her own like particular woes. She was actually in the essay that Leslie Jameson wrote that I talked about last week. Oh, okay, um, yeah. I didn't read this part out, but Louise Gluck's female pain is a big part of that essay. Yeah. So much like some other favourite ladies of mine who talk about <laughs> themselves, <coughs> Taylor Swift, she's had to really fight for credibility and mm-hmm. so I'm very pleased that she's getting the Nobel Prize. That's so good. I don't know her work that well. But, like, I know her enough that when I saw that, I was like, yes! Yes! <laughs> she's just cool. Yeah. Like, she's also very, like, she takes no shit. So, like, her online presence is almost, like, if she was a man, it would be called, like, cocky and cool. Mm. But, well, like, because she's a woman, it's, like, abrasive. Yeah. Um, but I love her for that. So Cool. And so, Emily, I know we try to keep things light here. Mm-hmm. But given the week of achievement we've had in our academic and writing lives thought it might be a nice idea to take a little moment and dedicate the episode mm-hmm. to someone who has definitely pushed us towards that success our dundee university creative writing tutor eddie small passed away a couple of weeks ago 
so all of it feels a little bit bittersweet because I know how happy he would have been to like yeah definitely hear about it all so I think that we should have a tea toast to yes. Eddie for always having time to sit down with a cuppa and encourage us and thank you Eddie for always showing us how to be infatuated about something yes oh yes I just want to say as well like he was the first person outside of my friends and family who told me he literally said you should be a published author and I'm just like never going to forget that it was very special to me and he always said our year of the undergrad was very special to him to Mm -hmm. him so I hope we all made him happy and proud because I think everyone tried to so yeah thank you Eddie and we will miss you we will okay Emily what are you infatuated about this week I am infatuated with Pandora's Jar by Natalie Haynes. It's so pretty. It's so pretty. Have you read all of that yeah. since it came? Yeah, I read it in like two days. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Jesus. So yeah, this came out 29th of September, which probably makes it like the quickest turnaround we've done, yeah. I think. For, for listeners, we're recording this on the 9th of October. Yeah. Although I finished it like a few days ago. <laughs> But yeah, I actually attended, like, online, obviously, Natalie Haynes' book launch for this last week, and it was incredible, like, so, so interesting and funny, and I took notes, like, the geek I am, so I, I have that. I have some little notes to <laughs> sprinkle through my script today, <laughs> and yeah, just before I jump into the book, I just want to say, actually, I think maybe the only good thing about COVID <laughs> is that I've been able to attend events like this online, mm. Because, like, previously I haven't made it to many book launches. Yeah. A, a lot of authors are, are now doing this. They're kind of launching all their stuff online. And it's really cool hearing them talk about their own work and their inspirations and stuff. So I'm trying to attend as many, like, online events as I can at the moment. Yeah. Just to kind of... I've been really enjoying that as well. Like, yeah. you know that I did the, again, Sabrina Benham's Good News workshop. Yeah, yeah. And I can't go all the time because I'm often working, but... You know, normally they're just in Canada, mm-hmm. so it's nice to have the option if I'm not working. Yeah, exactly. And Natalie Haynes herself is doing a bunch of events at the moment, and some of them are free. So I'm going to attend another one. I'm going to attend her talk at the Hay Festival online. Nice. So if you're at all interested in her work uh, or just any author's work, it's worth like googling or looking at their social media to see if they're doing anything because mm. it's a good way to support them, and also it's just fun. Yeah, I think Hazel Hayes is going to be at that festival as well. I could be wrong. I think she might be, actually, yes. Anyway. But yeah, anyway, on to the book. Mm. So for those of you who listened to our Myth and Folklore series, you'll know that I talked about Natalie's previous novel, A Thousand Ships. And that was a novel about the Trojan War from the perspective of the women who were part of it and like how they were affected by the war. And when I first heard about this book, I assumed it was going to be like a similar deal, like, mm. oh, kill some more greek myths from the perspective of women and that is an element of pandora's jar but it's actually a a lot more than that it's a non-fiction book which i feel i should put in like quotation marks because obviously she's looking at myths in real life but it's it's all about the history and the context of famous female characters from myth who have kind of been like lost throughout history And I don't mean lost as in, like, they've disappeared from our knowledge, but more that their characters have been interpreted differently from their source material over the years. 
I did not realise it was non-fiction. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah. So what Haynes does with each chapter is she takes a female character and starts by telling us like the famous version of the story, the most accepted version. And then she goes back and looks at the source material and the earliest examples that we can find of that woman. And then she goes forward and talks about how we portray them now or have done in like more recent years. Okay. So it's honestly so fascinating seeing how different like all of the interpretations are. But one thing I want to flag straight away is that there isn't really like a true version mm. of these stories. They've always been popular characters. There have always been multiple versions because that's just what they did then. Yeah. But we are in the kind of culture where like we latch on to the first version we come across. And then, as like, original. Yeah, and then everything else is seen as like a derivation. Mm. But for the Greeks that wasn't really a thing. And for us, that normally means we associate like the children's editions, so, like the most simplified versions of mythology as fact. Mm. But as you'll see, that's not always accurate because there's a lot of stuff that you wouldn't put in a kid's book yeah. that actually matters for characters. So That's a really good point, actually. Yeah. So I thought I would start with Pandora, seeing as she is the first character tackled and she's obviously the inspiration for the title. Mm. And some of you may be asking why it's called Pandora's Jar and not Pandora's Box. And so I thought I'd read a quote which explains why. I was wondering that. How did you know? (laughs) Uh, This is again where I apologise for not being able to pronounce words. I did try and Google it. (laughs) Indeed, the box doesn't appear in her story until Hesiod's Works and Days was translated into Latin by Erasmus in the 16th century, well over two millennia after Hesiod was writing in Greek. Erasmus was looking for a word to convey the Greek pithos, meaning jar. As the classical scholar and translator M.L. West describes, Hesiod meant a ceramic storage jar, a metre or so tall. Greek jars are narrow at the base, broadening out to a wide lip. They are not especially stable. Look in any museum of classical antiquities and you will see the many cracks and repairs which reveal their intrinsic fragility. Ceramic pots are often beautiful, ornately decorated works of art. But they are not where one would necessarily choose to store a set of evils that will cause mankind untold griefs for millennia to come. Quite aside from anything else, as anyone who has ever swept a kitchen floor will cheerlessly testify, lids aren't always tightly fastened, and we have the advantage of screw tops, something Pandora assuredly did not. West conjectures that Erasmus confused the stories of Pandora and Psyche, another character from Greek myth who does carry a box, Puxos, more usually transliterated as Pixis, when she is sent to the underworld on a quest. It's certainly a plausible theory. So did Erasmus confuse the two women, Pandora and Psyche, or confuse the two similar sounding words, jar, pithos, and box, puxos, in Greek, pixis in Latin? Either way, the loser is Pandora, because while it might take effort to open a box, it's much easier to knock a lid off or smash a top-heavy ceramic jar. And yet the linguistically doctored image of Pandora opening a box with malice, a forethought, is the one which has entered our culture. I have a tangential reaction to that. Okay, yes. Pixis is a word that I came across last year. Yes. And I think it's such a cool word Mm -hmm. because I was looking for etymologies to do with psychology and the idea of compartmentalising. Oh, yeah. And obviously Psyche yes. carries her pixis. pixis. Yeah. And I just think that that's like a cool aside that is to cool that aside. image. But yeah, why are we all blaming Pandora for opening a box when exactly. she had like a very unstable jar? 
Yeah, exactly. Because, like, as she kind of mentioned there, like, obviously a box signifies something that needs to be opened, like an action that needs to be undertaken to Mm. open it. And a lot of the artwork that you'll see of Pandora, she's, like, holding the box and her fingers are, like, under the lid. But obviously a jar, like, if that really unstable object breaks open, that may have not been her fault. (laughs) Yeah, and also, like, I think the jar being one meter tall yeah you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah it's huge it's you're not... not that much more than one meter tall. yeah yeah it's really interesting like because obviously we've all blamed her throughout history when in the source material she's very passive she's just made she's out of clay mm. she's she's got this jar Zeus makes her i think it's this it's always this it's always this and yeah, I to be honest, I don't really see her as to blame at all <laughs> when you read the source stuff. It doesn't seem like it. Um, I mean, in the very first source material, Eve didn't even pick the apple, so... She she does talk about... What? She talks about that in the same chapter, because obviously Eve and Pandora are often, like... The same. Conflated. And, yeah. Yeah. So, always blaming women. Exactly. And yeah, this story obviously inspired the title too, which Hayne says she picked because she wanted people to like stumble over the words. Mm. She wanted people to expect it to say box and it says jar and for them to be like, oh, why is that? And then want to read the book. I mean, it um, works. So it's very clever. I've also just remembered a fact about Pixis, which is that that's the name that shadow hunters use. They, they keep demons, they lock them in Pixises. That's so, so cool. I genuinely hadn't heard about it and I was looking for it because I wanted a title for like a piece that was about like a jewellery box Ah, but it was like a psychological jewellery box i like that and i was i literally googled what did what's greek and latin names for jewellery boxes (laughs) and i came across that and i liked how it sounded like pixies because it's a little bit magic yeah anyway anyway (laughs) Um, we've both come to that word (laughs) so yeah haynes doesn't just look at literary stories so the book is filled with like artwork paintings etching statues the painted vases, which are like the epitome of Greek art. And she could only put so many in the book, but she does cite any others that she mentions. So I'd really recommend like taking a second to Google them when mm. she mentions them, just so you can like get a feel for what she's talking about. And this quote I have is about another art form, the meme. Excellent. Yes, Haynes writes about memes and it's so good. So some context for this quote. She is writing about Medusa. And she has just told us about Medusa's story and how Perseus kills her by chopping off her head. And Haynes also tells us about a couple statues created by Canova and Selene of Perseus having slayed Medusa. Okay. And now I will read this. The Insta content for this is going to be excellent. Oh yeah, I, like I was going to mention this. I will post the photos of the statues and there's a third statue that I'll mention and we'll, we'll post them all. The second Medusa meme appeared two years later and its origins are somewhat more complicated. Ostensibly, it's a photograph of a statue made in 2008 by the Argentine-Italian artist Luciano Garbati. But it is extremely difficult to find any trace of the statue prior to the existence of the meme, which appeared around the same time as Professor Christine Blasey Ford's testimony of sexual assault to the US Senate Judiciary Committee. The image is striking and extremely shareable. A statue of Medusa stands alone in front of a completely black background. She is naked, just like Perseus in the Canova and Selene images, and is lithe, strong, young. Her hair is a mass of snakes, but they are beautiful, not grotesque. 
They look more like curling dreadlocks. Her expression is calm. Her eyes gaze out at us unapologetically. Her arms are by her side and she holds a sword in her left hand. In her right hand is a decapitated head of Perseus, which she holds by the hair. It is an exact reversal of the Canova image. Some versions of the meme came with an accompanying text. Be careful, we only want equality, it reads, next to Medusa's head. Below Perseus's decapitated neck, it continues, and not payback. It was the perfect illustration of what many women felt and continue to feel about the violence they experience at the hands of some men. Not only do these women face it in their daily lives, but they see it all around them presented as a norm, everywhere from newspaper headlines to the walls of art galleries and museums. Thousands of people walk past the Cellini statue in Florence every day. Thousands more see the Canova in New York and in Rome. Medusa may have snakes for hair, but she still has the face and body of a woman. The Canova sanitises this with its gleaming white marble. The name of the statue may be Perseus Triumphant, but it is only a triumphant image if you associate yourself with Perseus. The Cellini shows Perseus defiling Medusa's body so brutally that it must come from anger or contempt, or a combination of the two. It is no less shocking than when Achilles does the same to Hector in book 22 and 23 of the Iliad, dragging his corpse around the walls of Troy, refusing to bury him or to allow anyone else to do so for days, until the gods finally intervene in book 24. And yet Cellini's Perseus gazes down at the ground, even as he holds Medusa's head aloft and in front of him. There is no possibility he might accidentally catch her petrifying eyes. He is still afraid of her, even after he has beheaded her and trodden her down. If you're looking for a better metaphor for virulent misogyny, I'm afraid I don't have one. We are so accustomed to seeing this image that we barely notice the cruelty which underpins the story. It's just a hero in his trophy. We walk past it in the same way we might half-heartedly notice the statue of St George and a dragon. It's only a dragon, who cares? But Medusa isn't a monster like a dragon. She's a woman who was raped and then punished for it with snakish hair. Her lethal stare is a localised peril. Avoid her and you would never be in danger because she keeps herself far away from mortals. She is damaged first by a god, then by a goddess. And finally, Perseus comes looking for her to kill her and mutilate her to satisfy the whim of another man. No matter who she encounters, besides her sisters, they only want to injure her. Oh, man. Yeah. Medusa. I know. And I'm just going to show you the statues so yeah. that you can like get an idea for, for what we're looking at here. Yes, please. So this is the Canova. Right. So it's like this is the Selene, which is a lot more brutal. So you can see her hand is like hanging down over the plinth, oh, and, and he's like her standing on he's her. standing on her, and her feet like she's wrapped in a really awkward position. Like her feet are facing the front of the pedestal as well. Oh, it's very brutal. And this is the Medusa one. Oh, I love that. It's really cool. Yeah, I love it as well. It has like got all the heroic stance mm. that the first two have. Mm-hmm. Which I really enjoy. Yeah. But she is naked, which, like, fair play. Yeah. And also, like, so in both of the images, like, Perseus is holding her head up. Because mm-hmm. he's obviously, like, triumphant. triumphant. But she's just got, like, she's holding his head down at the side and the sword down at the side. It's almost like she's like, I had to do this. Yeah, she's I didn't not, enjoy it. She's not proud like, of it. Yeah. So, very, very cool. I'm glad that uh, Natalie Haynes introduced me to that. Yeah. 
and yeah like i said i'll put those on our social media so you guys can look at them as well because they're very powerful images i wonder how big those statues all are yeah i think the i think the selene one like the really brutal one is really big because it's already on a plinth and then it's it's higher up i think one of them is around the statue of david holy shit like I don't know if it's that size. But oh right, it's, it's, it's physically a, like, around physically it. around it. Right, yeah, I thought you meant around the size of the. Stuff. No, no, no. Like I think it's in the same square. Okay. So. But yeah, Haynes is right. Like the the statues of Perseus slaying Medusa may look impressive. They may even look quite cool. Like depending on your opinion, but they're not triumphant if you associate with her. Yeah. Which let's face it, most women will. Yeah. Also, like, even from like a sexist point of view, like that kind of like the kind of 1950s sexist mm. point of view there's something just really unmanly about a man being so triumphant about beheading a woman mm. like i know she's like meant to be a monster yeah but i'm also just like it kind of makes me want to be just like are you do you feel like a big man <laughs> <laughs> yeah. do you know what i mean <laughs> But yeah, Medusa is a very interesting woman because, like, she isn't human turned monstrous like she's often depicted these days. Like, she was already a quote-unquote monster. She was mm. a gorgon. And, like, so much of our media depicts her as vicious, but a lot of the art from ancient Greece shows her as sleeping when Perseus cuts off her head. She doesn't even fight back. And, yeah, in my mind, Medusa's one of the biggest contrasts, like, now from her source material. Mm. Like, you just have to look at, like, if anyone's seen Percy Jackson films, it's Uma Thurman plays Medusa and she's very, like, sexy and, like, like evil. And it's just, like, that's just so the opposite of the the original character. Yeah, she's supposed to, is she not, like, like, her vibe meant to be more kind of Quasimodo, like... Yeah, like, she stays in a cave so she won't harm yeah, anyone. Yeah, I don't want to harm anyone, I don't yeah. want it to subject anyone to me. Yeah, exactly. But she still gets her head cut off because she's more useful when she's dead because her head can get used as a weapon. Like, <sighs> yeah. I just really love Medusa and... Yeah, her origin's also very interesting because it was suspected that she was only created... Because there are a bunch of gorgon heads all over Greece. They're like a, like a talisman or like a sign of protection. Mm. So like I'm pretty sure it's Athena has one on her like breastplate. Agamemnon has them like on his shoulders or something like on his armour. Right. And basically like a story was created to explain them. So like they needed to explain why there was a bunch of decapitated heads everywhere. Oh. And so Medusa and Perseus were thought up to like tell that story. Oh. So I just think that's a very cool fact that is cool (laughs) i enjoy that logic as well because i feel like sometimes we don't like we put way more importance on the idea of like what came first yeah and but i think that's like a very pure quite like childlike way to make up a story like Mm -hmm. you see something and you're like i'm gonna explain that away with a fiction yeah and i think that was is what a lot of uh, ancient greek myths are yeah (laughs) which i enjoy yeah i think that's cool (laughs) So yeah, I'll move on. Another chapter I really loved was on the Amazons, who Haynes describes as what a great girl gang. I'm like, (laughs) yep. (laughs) The Amazons are actually the second most popular art on Greek vases after Heracles, which is pretty cool. That is cool. And the whole time I was reading this chapter, I was thinking like, when is she going to mention Wonder Woman? (laughs) And guess what? She does. (laughs) So I adore Wonder Woman, like the new one with Gal Gadot as Diana. It's probably, like, my favourite superhero film. 
I really loved um, it, and I don't even like superhero films. Yeah, and like now knowing what I know about Greek mythology, I want to go back and like watch it again mm. to see how they like uh, change things. It is a very loose <laughs> retelling, and I'm actually not going to read out a quote about Wonder Woman, but the section's really great. It's quite big, which is why I'm not going to read it out, and it focuses a lot on the main difference between the Amazons from myth and the Amazons in the film is that in myth the Amazons were always a team they always worked together right when Penthesilea fought Achilles like she was flanked by 12 other Mm. Amazons but in Wonder Woman Diana works alone and there are obviously story-based reasons for that yeah but it does contrast with what is a really important feature so it's just interesting to see how we've like interpreted that in a different way can I just say that was like one of my favourite scenes in Song of Achilles and it is in like the very hazy yeah, bit where like right at the he, end. Yeah. he just wants to die, he just wants someone to kill him. Yeah. But I felt like that was, you know, like he doesn't have a lot of remorse for killing people until... He has remorse for her, yeah. Yeah, because he really, but, but it's selfish remorse because he was like, she was the only one that I thought could actually kill me. Yeah. And it's, it is very interesting because there's a lot of, in this book and like other things I've read... Like, no one really knows why Achilles was that remorseful. Like, I, I do think mm. it is that, that it's like, oh, he thought, like, she was going to be the one that kills me. But, like, there's a lot of interpretations of it. Like, there's ones, there's kind of gross ones where, like, he has sex with her body and stuff. And, like, yeah. I'm just, like, I'm not into that. But, like, there's there's ones where, like, he, cr- like, properly cries over her and, like, mm. holds her. And, like, it's, it's very, like... My instinct is, like women that are very strong like physically and Mm. like in battle and stuff are like always somehow more revered and just like more hopeful there's something just more like yeah definitely hopeful about them and maybe it's just like the fact that he's taken down this like symbol of hope i don't know i would be sad if i was him and i killed her yeah yeah definitely (laughs) so yeah i'm not i'm not gonna talk about Wonder Woman, but one quote I do have from this chapter makes me very, very happy. And I think you'll know why as soon as I read it out. It is a bit of a longer one, but I think it's worth reading out because it's a good way to show you guys how she takes, like, a pop culture thing Mm -hmm. and, like, turns it into Greek myth and, like, we can see the, like, the link, basically. Cool. If we are looking for contemporary recreations of Amazon warriors, then Wonder Woman has a Californian counterpart who matches her in courage, strength, and skill. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Ah! Uh. <laughs> Not only is Joss Whedon's Buffy the physical and mental match for any vampire, male or female, but she also possesses a highly unusual characteristic in any fighter. She is funny. Wit isn't a characteristic traditionally prized among warriors. They tend to be valued for strength, speed, or courage. The wisecracking fighter is a modern phenomenon, which has really come into its own with the rise of the superhero movie. Cinematic fighters were once strong and silent, Clint Eastwood, John Wayne, or occasionally would allow themselves to be the butt of the joke for the greater good. Christopher Reeve's geeky Clark Kent, all fingers and thumbs. The vast majority of action heroes are male and, since the demise of screwball comedy, so are most characters who have funny lines in films of almost any genre. Buffy broke a lot of rules when she appeared in Sunnydale, California as the chosen one, ready to fight to save the world, but also ready to try out for the cheerleading team. Because Buffy is the out-of-towner who moves to small-town Sunnydale from LA, when we meet her she doesn't have a tribe or gang, but by the end of the first episode she has found one the Scoobies, as they will come to be known. 
Buffy's supporting cast are male and female, unlike the all-female tribe of Amazons we saw Wonder Woman grow up with. Buffy fights alongside Willow, Xander, Giles, Angel, Cordelia, and later, Faith, Spike, Anya, and Tara. For her countless fans, the whole point of Buffy is that she may be more powerful than the average person, but she is no less human. Just like her Amazon predecessors, she is always impeccably dressed in her version of the best possible warrior outfit. She may wear fewer patterned leggings and big cat skins, but she more than makes up for it with the chic mini dresses and bicep boasting vest tops and a handy bag or pocket in which to store her wooden stake. Her fighting prowess, like that of Penthesilea before her, is tremendously impressive. She can be beaten in single combat, but only by an exceptional warrior. The Master, who is a vampire of prodigious age and strength. Glory, who is a god. In season one, in her penultimate battle with the Master, she drowns, but is revived. The moment she is capable, she goes to fight him again, and this time succeeds in impaling him on a stake. Buffy's second death in season five is particularly poignant. Realising she will have to die or see her sister Dawn killed, she makes the ultimate sacrifice. She dies for love. It is, as we can see in so many depictions of Amazons on vase paintings, an Amazonian death. A female warrior giving up her life so another woman may live. It's a crucial part of Buffy's mythology, as we see in season 6, when she is wrenched from the afterlife and returned to Sunnydale by a powerful magical spell. It's do or die, the Scooby sing in the seminal musical episode once more with feeling. Hey, I've died twice, Buffy responds. We can surely conclude that death now holds no fear for her. She has become even more like Penthesilea. Just as her Amazon ancestors appeared in poetry, prose and art, Buffy is a multimedia phenomenon. Film, television, musical, video game, comic book and more. There are many reasons the show continues to resonate years after it finished, not least the Amazon echoing story arc of the final season. Buffy has saved the world many times by season 7, and she and her gang decide there is an alternative. By means of a rare artefact and a magic spell, every potential slayer in the world is empowered to become an actual slayer. The chosen one is now the chosen many. Buffy is able to step away from constant demon slaying because she helps to train up many more young women to fight in her stead. The message is simple. Women are stronger together than apart, even ones with superpowers. And this is what makes Buffy a contemporary Amazon. She may be uniquely talented, like Penthesilea, but she steps away from individual glory. Her status is not threatened by creating more heroic women, quite the reverse, it is cemented. Amazons, even when one is exceptional, are a team, a tribe, a gang, and it is this which Buffy captures so perfectly, an ensemble of women fighting to save us all. Yes. <laughs> How can you read that and like not feel empowered? <laughs> Do you want to go and start a gang? <laughs> yeah. Who wants to be in our gang? <laughs> See, if you guys can tell, I love Buffy. Um, she does. She's been watching it all week. Yeah. And uh, there are lots of moments like this in the book where Haynes like, gives us an example which puts Greek mythology into stories like that we already know, maybe even like easier to understand. And yeah, I never thought about Buffy and the other Slayers being like Amazons, but it's so obvious now that she's like laid that out for me. And I like that in a weird way, Buffy is more of an Amazon than Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Go Buffy. I really need to watch this show. I don't know how it's passed me by in my life. I know, I don't know because like, I know you've seen little bits of it when I've been watching it, but I just think you would love 
the dialogue so much. Everyone like, has told me that I would love Buffy. And yeah. it's like one of those things that just... I saw bits of it when I was younger, saw bits of it as a teenager, I've seen bits of it with you and with like Zoe and like yeah. other friends and I've just never sat down and watched it. Yeah, it. you do need to. It's very good. So yeah, this final quote I have is actually from the introduction of the book, but I thought it kind of summed everything up quite mm. well. And it explains why Haynes wrote the book and like the main kind of like thesis statement of the of the book. I have spent the last few years writing novels which tell stories from Greek myth that have largely been forgotten. Female characters were often central figures in ancient versions of these stories. The playwright Euripides wrote eight tragedies about the Trojan War which survive to us today. One of them, Orestes, has a male title character. The other seven have women as their titles. Andromache, Electra, Hecabe, Helen, Iphigenia and Aulis, Iphigenia among the Taurians, and the Trojan women. When I began hunting out the stories I wanted to tell, I felt exactly like Perseus in the Harry Houston movie, squinting at reflections in the half-light. These women were hiding in plain sight, in the pages of Ovid and Euripides. They were painted on vases which are held in museums all over the world. They were in fragments of lost poems and broken statues, but they were there. It was, however, while debating the character of a non-Greek woman that I decided to write this book. I was on Radio 3 discussing the role of Dido, the Phoenician queen who founded the city of Carthage. To me, Dido is a tragic heroine, self-denying, courageous, heartbroken. To my interviewer, she was a vicious schemer. I was responding to her in Virgil's Aeneid. He was responding to her in Marlowe's Dido, Queen of Carthage. I'd spent so long thinking about ancient sources, I'd forgotten that most people get their classics from a more modern source. Marlowe is modern to classicists. Dismal though I think the film Troy to be, for example, it's probably been seen by more people than have read the Iliad. So I decided I would choose ten women whose stories have been told and retold in paintings, plays, films, operas, musicals and more, and I would show how differently they were viewed in the ancient world. How major female characters in Ovid would become non-existent Hollywood wives in 21st century cinema. How artists would recreate Helen to reflect the ideals of beauty of their own time, and we would lose track of the clever, funny, sometimes frightening woman that she is in Homer and Euripides. And how some modern writers and artists were finding these women, just like I was, and putting them back at the heart of the story. Every myth contains multiple timelines within itself. The time in which it is set, the time it's first told, and every retelling afterwards. Myths may be home of the miraculous, but they are also mirrors of us. Which version of a story we choose to tell, which characters we place in the foreground, which ones we allow to fade into the shadows, these reflect both the teller and the reader as much as they show the characters of the myth. We have made space in our storytelling to rediscover women who have been lost or forgotten. They are not villains, victims, wives and monsters, they are people. I love that. Yeah, same. I love that line about who we choose to put in reflects the time. Yeah. That's very, like, well observed. Yeah, like the whole myths are a mirror Mm -hmm. thing as well. And it's like something we've talked about a lot in here before. Like, each generation focuses on the bit of the myth that tells us about ourselves. Yeah. And, like, I'd say, thankfully, like, for us, that seems to be, like, the way women have been mistreated, both, like, in the stories and just how they've been told to us or not told to us, as the case may be. 
and yeah like we're both quite obsessed with different like stories and reputations and the ways that stories get interpreted differently and Mm -hmm. that's what I liked about this book Um, and like Haynes is right most people know Greek myth through modern day retellings like blockbuster films or children's books and although there's nothing intrinsically wrong with learning myth that way it's also important to accept that like a simplified version is never going to contain the complexity or nuance that like the story or the female character deserves to tell yeah and it is often like it goes for male characters as well it's just that they've not been as often sidelined yeah yeah exactly but like in the same way that women have been forgotten about and therefore not given their complexity i feel like men get simplified oh yeah definitely hero Mm -hmm. um or or villain yep and as like a lot of the books that you've been discussing lately have like shown like different interpretations like they are whole people too Mm -hmm. so i think like that's yeah yeah, like it's a really good point to make yeah well even with like you know we've talked about song of achilles and stuff like if you read a lot of stuff about achilles he is very you know just brutal man like one dimensional like blah blah blah. but the song of achilles you know it was written by a woman so you could argue maybe that's why but like (laughs) you know he has like a life and soul and like he's sympathetic at times and like and that's very reflective of like the feminism that we're living in now where yeah. like men are allowed to have emotions yeah and exactly that's like a big kind of cornerstone yeah. of our generation isn't mm-hmm. it so so in the wee like book launch thing what Hayne said women are half the world so if we don't tell their stories we don't tell stories full stop <laughs> and she also said thanks men you've had a good goal <laughs> which I also enjoy <laughs> So yeah, the more I read about like women in Greek mythology, from like Natalie Haynes, Madeline Miller, and other like great female authors, the more I love them and wonder why they've been like sidelined or changed so much. And when Haynes was asked uh, at that book launch, like where to get started with reading Greek mythology, she responded by saying like, "Oh, I've read the stuff, so you don't have to. I've picked out all the best bits, the best." the bits with all the girls in <laughs> uh, which is obviously a joke because yeah. she did then go in with recommendations but it's kind of true yeah <laughs> and I know like obviously the simple answers to why men have been at the forefront is like the patriarchy but if you look at it purely through a story perspective like there's just so many cool female characters yeah and obviously the ancient Greeks knew this mm-hmm. because they were at the forefront of all the stories but somehow it's been like lost in translation throughout the years and I obviously didn't have the space to talk about all the women in this book but every single one is fascinating like I learned so much in all of them I feel smarter <laughs> for yeah, having I read, really, I really this want book. to read this book so anyway yeah I'm glad people like Natalie Haynes are sharing these stories because I do think it will inspire storytellers to tell the stories maybe more how they started out with like really badass complex fully faceted female characters it was really fun and I should say if anyone's put off by it being non-fiction or like even arguably academic like I'm sure you guys can tell from what I read out like it's not like that it's not hard to understand it's not like reading like a stuffy literary criticism she breaks it all down into very digestible pieces and it's also very funny because she's a comedian so like Mm. there's jokes in there and lots of recognizable pop culture and yeah, I'm definitely in love with this one. Can't wait for what she does next, which she has said will probably be a book on Medusa or Medea. Mm. So I can't wait for those. And that's me this week. <laughs> Do you know what all that makes me think of? Like, 
obviously we have like a joke in our culture and like in our flat of mm. just like men <laughs> you know yeah but and like we all we often think like we're getting more evolved and like the patriarchy or whatever is like becoming less yeah and so i think because we can see forward movement when you think back you think that it must always have been worse yeah exactly. and I, th- I think like when you think about how prominent all these female figures were in stories written by men mm-hmm. in ancient greece it like it really does kind of give me hope in a way because I'm yeah. like, the patriarchy and misogyny clearly isn't an inherent human characteristic. No, and that is a big focus of this book. Like, you can see it. It's only when she ends up talking about the modern day, like, contemporary stuff that all the, like, sexism comes in. Like, obviously there's... Women had less rights and stuff. Like Yeah, well, you, that's what I mean, because you assume because it wasn't legalised in the same yeah, way. Yeah, and, like, you know, like... The, ma- the man could like be an adulterer but mm-hmm. the woman couldn't like there's lots of stuff like that that obviously is very backwards to us but in terms of like the storytelling and mm-hmm. like the characters and because you don't want to romanticize the like millennia of violence that, yes, of, exactly. and, and like more brutality because there yeah. was different cultural norms yeah that's horrific but i do feel like there's something that like i can't access because we don't have it anymore but there was, there seems to have been some sort of mindset or like viewing of women that was just different. Yeah. And it yeah. wasn't all like sometimes some cultures really put them on a pedestal and like yeah. worship them, which also isn't great. Yeah. For other reasons, but like the ancient Greeks seem to have a really unique way of seeing them as real people. Yeah. No, definitely. Yeah. And it's just yeah, it gives me a little bit of hope. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, I suppose there, there's probably as many female goddesses as are as male gods mm. in ancient greek so yeah i feel like you've kind of got that balance as well don't you mm-hmm. yeah it's, just, it's very interesting like i'm so like sucked into this world now i know and you've got me sucked into it too <laughs> and it's like it's so annoying because like i can't research this like for uni yeah but like i'm itching to mm. like write an essay or something which is why i'm going to keep talking about it on the podcast guys <laughs> apologies <laughs> Don't apologise, it's so fun. But yeah, yeah, that's me this week. Sorry, I've rambled a lot uh, today. No, that's, that's cool, what we're here for. Yep. So what's your infatuation this week? So for my infatuation this week, you have been in ancient Greece. I have been in Paris. I've <laughs> <laughs> been having a very Parisian week, actually. I've been eating a lot of croissants. Mm. We've both been watching Emily in Paris. Mm-hmm. Been drinking a lot of wine. <laughs> um, and my infatuation falls into that theme because it is a novella called The Cat, or La Chat by Colette. And this story, interestingly, came to me kind of by accident. I was just in Waterstones and I'd always wanted to read Colette's more famous novella, Gigi, Mm. which is like a really gorgeous story about a young girl who's training to be a courtesan in turn of the century Paris. But the volume that that came in also included the cat, which is actually about double the length of Gigi, but which I'd never heard of. Mm. So I've absolutely fallen in love with it. But before I get into the story, I want to take a minute to focus on the author, Colette. First of all, we love a woman who only goes by her first name. Mm-hmm. Big share energy. Mm-hmm. And this, for anyone wondering, is the same Colette that Kira Knightley played in the biopic of the same name a couple of years ago. Which I need to watch. Me- yeah, so do I now. Um, <laughs> she had Colette had an incredible life, and I'm going to read out the little author introduction at the start of this book, just to give you an idea of how wild <laughs> it was. <laughs> 
So it says, Colette was an intriguing and flamboyant figure. (laughs) Which, by the way, (laughs) if that's not what someone's going to say about you when you're dead, what's the point? (laughs) Yeah. Born Sidonie Gabrielle Colette in Burgundy in 1873. She moved to Paris at the age of 20 with her husband, the writer and critic Henri Gautier Villar, or Willie. Forcing Colette to write, Willie published her novels in his name, and the Claudine series became an instant success. She escaped her exploitative first husband to live by her pen and work in music halls as a dancer. Colette had a lesbian love affair with Napoleon's niece. She married three times, had a baby at 40 and at 47. Preferring passion to goodness, she seduced her teenage stepson. In the meantime, she wrote stunning novels that were admired by Proust and Guidet, Gigi, Sido, Sherry, and Break of Day. Colette lived to be over 80. She was the first woman president of the Académie Goncourt and was the first woman in France to be accorded a state funeral. What a cool woman. It's like a lot in about eight sentences. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that about Napoleon's niece. niece. <laughs> like, wow, okay. I also didn't think about them as existing... Oh, around the same time, yeah. I'm like, what? There's a lot to unpack there. (laughs) But honestly, if life is a game, I feel like Colette wins. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pretty cool life. I love that quote about her preferring passion to goodness. (laughs) Um, And I think that quality is like what's made me fall in love with her writing because it's very like sumptuous. Mm. It's very decadent and like lush and like total Taurus dream. (laughs) So... Without further ado, I will talk about the cat. Yes. So it's a very strange little story. It's quite simplistic in its narrative, but I think it works. So Alan, the protagonist, or Elan, but Mm. I'm going to just say it as if they're in English. (laughs) Alan is a young man and he's grown up in a beautiful big house with beautiful big gardens. He's old money, but at this point his family have more status than actual money. Okay. Camille, his fiancée, is like a modern woman. She drives. She, you know, wears trousers. I love the name Camille. I love Camille as well. Camille. Camille. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Anyway, her family are very new money, but they actually have money. So they've known each other since childhood, and it's quite clear they've been, like, quietly betrothed Mm -hmm. for most of their lives. And once they're married, they're to move into their pal's trendy, like, Paris apartment until part of Alan's family home is renovated for them to live in. So you can see already how this is going to be like a story of rivalries. You're going to have like man versus woman, tradition versus maternity, country versus city, roots and skyscrapers, innocence and experience. Like it has all that. It's a very simple story. Mm -hmm. But outside of all of those really straightforward rivalries that you could pick out for any standard grade English essay, there is one thrown in which drives the whole narrative in a really strange way. And it's Camille versus Alan's cat, Saha. Okay. So Colette doesn't waste any time in setting up the dynamics between what are essentially three main characters. She does it very like quickly and deftly in the space of a few pages, so that's what I'm going to read out here. We open in the first chapter a week before the wedding. So Camille and her family are all over at Alan's house. It's getting late, they've been playing cards and stuff, they're going to head home soon. And they're all talking about arrangements for the wedding. Camille gets up to serve Alan a drink, there's a wee bit of direct speech, and then this is Alan's narration. She was talking fast, scratching at two little smudges of lipstick at the corner of her mouth with a pointed nail. Alan listened to her, not bored but not indulgent either. 
He had known her for several years and classified her as a typical modern girl. He knew the way she drove a car, a little too fast and a little too well, her eyes alert and her scarlet mouth always ready to swear violently at a taxi driver. He knew that she lied unblushingly, as children and adolescents do, that she was capable of deceiving her parents so as to get out after dinner and meet him at a nightclub. There they danced together, but they drank only orange juice because Alan disliked alcohol. Before their official engagement, she had yielded her discreetly white lips to him, both by daylight and in the dark. She had also yielded her impersonal breasts, always imprisoned in a lace brassiere, and her very lovely legs in the flawless stockings she bought in secret. Stockings like misting guets, you know? Mind my stockings, Alan. Her stockings and her legs were the best things about her. She's pretty, Alan thought dispassionately, because not one of her features is ugly, because she's an out-and-out brunette. Those lustrous eyes perfectly match that sleek, glossy, frequently washed hair that's the colour of a new piano. He was also perfectly aware that she could be as violent and capricious as a mountain stream. She was still talking about the roadster. <laughs> I love hair like a new piano. I know, I underlined that. <laughs> but I love this paragraph because I think it like really illuminates right at the start a theme which carries through the book, which is that memorising someone and knowing them aren't the same. Mm, mm-hmm. this is Alan's first proper like inner monologue you get quite a lot of them mm-hmm. and I think it paints him out as like quite cold and unfeeling this is the woman that he's saying that he loves and he's like acting the part of admiring her but he's kind of just more evaluating her yeah and the other thing that's interesting here and which becomes prominent as well is that like the sexual attraction the way that he notices her body and even like talks about their physical intimacy is very dispassionately narrated Mm. yeah like there's almost a distaste and the funny thing about it is that alan knows he's been like this because following on directly from that quote it goes she was still talking about the roadster no daddy no absolutely no question of letting my alan take the wheel while we're driving through switzerland he's too absent-minded and besides he doesn't really like driving i know him she knows me alan echoed in his own mind Perhaps she really thinks she does. Over and over again, I've said to her too, I know you, my girl. Saha knows her too. Where is that Saha? <laughs> and so what What I love about that is that even though it's like really intentional prose, like everything is serving the forward movement of bringing the cat into this. Yeah. It doesn't feel clunky. The blurb on the back calls it like supple prose, and I think you can see that here. The way it just like slides from like Camille to the cat. Yeah. Um, Is that the first mention of the cat? That's the the first mention of the cat. Interesting. Yeah. So then Alan goes out into the garden, and we have this little sequence, which I just think is beautiful. Where are you, Alan? Camille was calling him from the top of the steps, but on an impulse, he refused to answer. Deliberately, he made for the safer refuge of the shadows, feeling his way along the edge of the shaven lawn with his foot. High in the sky, a hazy moon held court, looking larger than usual through the mist of the first warm days. A single tree, a poplar with newly opened glossy leaves, caught the moonlight and trickled with as many sparkles as a waterfall. A silver shadow leapt out of a clump of bushes and glided like a fish against Alan's ankles. Ah, there you are, Saha. I was looking for you. Why didn't you appear at the table tonight? Maroa, answered the cat. Maroa. What, Maroa? And why, Maroa? Do you really mean it? Maroa, 
insisted the cat. Moroa. He stroked her tenderly, groping his way down the long spine that was softer than a hare's fur. Then he felt under his hand at the small, cold nostrils dilated by her violent purring. She's my cat. My very own cat. Mra, said the cat very softly. Roa. Camille called once more from the house and Saha vanished under a clipped unimus hedge, black-green like the night. This is one page over and I feel like this Alan is just totally different to the one that you had a minute ago. Yeah, definitely. You would think um, those roles would be switched. Yeah, but like he's so... He's talking to the cat yeah. to begin with. He's not actually spoken to Camille yeah, yet yeah. in the story. Um, and he's just like so tender and like affectionate mm-hmm. and there's like a real boyishness. About and him. the fact that he's like petting the cat, but he like he hasn't touched like Camille. He's just looked at her. Yeah, as opposed to like like he approaches Camille in a very like manlike way. It's almost like he's playing the part of an adult. Yeah, because their relationship is defined by marriage, which yeah. is like an adult thing. Whereas with Saha, it's like he can be his like inner child. Yeah, and it's very endearing, I think. And so yeah, the first few pages just set up this like really obvious triangular structure which Colette then develops into like a very weird and like wacky, sad story about what happens when someone has to grow up but they don't want to. Mm. So it follows Alan and Camille to the Paris apartment and then they're in more confined space and that like humorous tension between Camille and Saha becomes quite sinister. But it's done really delicately, it's done with quite a fine wee brush and there are like, there is loads of ways that you could end up unpacking this story. It's almost like like an Arthur Miller play. Right, In that yeah. way where, like, everything takes place in one room. Yeah. And there's so many layers. So, like, some people, when I was researching this, some people read Saha as, like, a symbol of repressed homosexuality oh, that Alan has, which, yeah. like, a lot of, like, young men with cats, that was, like, a... Yeah. That was, like, a stereotype. Yeah. Or, like, a sort of audible symbol of his mother's home because when Saha leaves the big house, she gets kind of sick. Right. Because she can't like roll them out in the garden. Oh yeah. Um, or like, there's loads you can say about class politics, but with the different settings of like the high up modern apartment and like crumbling estate. There's like strong feminist readings of Camille as a modern woman who flouts the tradition of like feline sexuality mm-hmm. because she's described in like he has this focus on she has a very thick neck, okay. almost in like a manly way. Like she doesn't have delicacy. Yeah. On her, whereas Saha's like very delicate like yeah. that line about her spine because yeah, cats are always like weirdly sexualized and yeah stuff exactly yeah and like women and cats are always conflated yeah. in a very sexual way yeah so like, honestly like the book is a hundred pages but it manages to say so much <laughs> um it's a very good book but there's actually so much that you could say about all that that i was like i got a bit overwhelmed <laughs> with the amount of readings that i could do so yeah. i've chosen to do none of those readings Um, And I'm going to focus on the thing that made this book, like, it doesn't make it important in any of those big ways, but it made it very important to me. Okay. And it was that Colette knows how to write a cat for people that love cats. Oh, good. So, I think writing animals is really, really difficult. Yeah. As a writer. Agreed. Unless you're going for, like, Michael Murpurgo anthropomorphised animal (laughs) narrator, I've never really seen it done well. And I have a cat, as you know, called Sprite. And she's 17 now, so I've seen her through all of her stages of life. Yeah. From, like, tiny kitten to, like, playful adult to, like, very dignified old lady. Mm. And from that experience, I feel like Saha is the most realistic 
cat I've met in literature. Okay. So I've picked three of my favourite passages of Saha just being a cat. Because that was my favourite part of this book. I think you'd like Church the cat in the Shadowhunter books because he's basically like an immortal cat. He's in all the books. Aww. Uh, And he's great. He's very funny. He doesn't like anyone except one character who's also immortal. (laughs) That's very (laughs) cat-like. Exactly. (laughs) So this is after Camille leaves that night and Alan is just playing with the cat. Cool. (laughs) Saha! Saha! The cat sprang out of the shadow almost under his feet. When he began to run, she ran too, leaping ahead of him with long bounds. He guessed she was there without seeing her. She burst before him into the hall and came back to wait for him at the top of the steps. With her frill standing out and her ears low, she watched him running towards her, urging him on with her yellow eyes. Those deep-set eyes were proud and suspicious, completely masters of themselves. Saha! Saha! Pronounced in a certain way, under his breath, with the H strongly aspirated, her name sent her crazy. She lashed her tail, bounded into the middle of the poker table, and with her two cat's hands spread wide open, she scattered the playing cards. That cat, that cat, said his mother's voice. She hasn't the faintest notion of hospitality. Look how delighted she is that her friends have gone. Alan let out a spurt of childish laughter, the laugh he kept for home in the close intimacy which did not extend beyond the screen of the elms or the black wrought iron gate. Then he gave a frantic yawn. Good heavens, how tired you look. Is it possible to look as tired as that when one is happy? There's still some orangeade. No, we can go up then. Don't bother, Emile will turn out the lights. Mother's talking to me as if I were getting over an illness, or as if I were starting up a paratyphoid again. Saha, Saha, what a demon. Alan, you couldn't persuade that cat? By a vertical path known to herself, marked on the worn brocade, the cat had almost reached the ceiling. One moment she imitated a grey lizard, flattening against the wall with her paws spread out. Then she pretended to be giddy and tried an affected little cry of appeal. Alan obediently came and stood below, and Saha slid down, glued to the wall like a raindrop sliding down a pane. Then she came to rest on Alan's shoulder, and the two of them went up together to their bedroom. (laughs) That's so cute! I know! (laughs) You can just see her picture that, yeah. Just like. The physics of a cat's body. <laughs> they just make no sense. And they're so silly. Aww. I just love that. I love... I love Saha. She's such <laughs> a good cat. And this is just another... It's a similar passage. But mm-hmm. again, I just think that it captures the catness very well. Mm-hmm. So this is her just... They're out in the garden lazing one day. Two green finches came hopping along the gravel path to pick up the breakfast crumbs and Saha followed them with her eye without getting excited. But a tomtit, hanging upside down in an elm above the table, chirped at the cat out of bravado. Sitting there with her paws folded, her head thrown back, and the frill of fur under her chin displayed like a pretty woman's jabot, Saha tried hard to restrain herself, but her cheeks swelled with fury and her little nostrils moistened. As beautiful as a fiend, more beautiful than a fiend, Alan told her. He wanted to stroke the broad skull in which lodged ferocious thoughts, and the cat bit him sharply to relieve her anger. He looked at the two little beads of blood on his palm with the irascibility of a man whose woman has bitten him at the height of her pleasure. Bad girl, bad girl, look what you've done to me. She lowered her head, sniffed the blood, and timidly questioned her friend's face. She knew how to amuse him and charm him back to good humour. 
She scooped up a rusk from the table and held it between her paws like a squirrel. <laughs> oh. Which obviously there's like very sexual readings you could do into that yeah. paragraph, but I do just think I love the line the cat bit him sharply to relieve her anger. Yeah. Because as a cat owner, like they do that all the time. It's like they just get so full of emotion and they don't know where to put it. Yeah. And they've got nothing to kill and they know it's like they know they can't hurt you. So they just yeah. Bite sink you. their teeth into you. And like, what are you doing? <laughs> but then, literally, two seconds later, they'll be giving you the big puss and boots eyes, like, oh, yeah. I didn't mean it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I just think it's a great description. I've just never seen such a well, good yeah, description. Well, yeah, because it's like she's given the cat personality, but it's not anthropomorphized. Yeah. Like, when you like Michael Mapargo, like you said. Exactly. Um, it's almost like the way that we do it, it's like live. Like, the way that you do when you have a pet where you explain their personality to yourself. Yeah, yeah. You'll be like, oh, what are you doing, you little, like, monster? Yeah. And they don't know that. Yeah, yeah. But you're. it's like she's doing that in her writing, mm-hmm. which I think is really sweet. And my last one is just a very short part in the apartment in Paris. And there's, the three of them are all sitting after dinner. One evening after dinner, Saha was sitting on her friend's knee. What about me? said Camille. I've two knees, Alan retorted. Nevertheless, the cat did not use her privilege for long. Some mysterious warning made her return to the polished ebony table where she seated herself on her own bluish reflection immersed in a dusky pool. There was nothing unusual about her behaviour except the fixed attention she gave to the invisible things straight in front of her in the air. What's she looking at? asked Camille. (laughs) And I think that's like a great example of how Colette uses the cat's behaviour. And it is very cat-like, mm-hmm. you know, to not want to be... Like, when they're on your knee and then someone else comes close to you, they want to run away. Yeah. To, like, stare at things in space. But it becomes very sinister. Yeah. A ghost. Yeah. <laughs> and I just think, like, the story is called The Cat. And she could have used that as a, a symbol. Mm-hmm. But she really uses the the cat likeness of the cat to drive the story yeah. and to tell you about all the other characters too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just I know it's probably missing all the big great literary points of the book. <laughs> but I really like the care and the accuracy that yeah. Colette takes with the Saha descriptions. Well, this is about what we're infatuated with and exactly. that's what you enjoyed about it. It so. is. And it shows like this what I think why I enjoyed it because I was trying to like you can just enjoy it for the sake of it because it's good. But I was thinking about it. And I think it's like, it shows a really devoted kind of earnestness that really charms me. Mm-hmm. And that's quite European, I think. Like, I don't think a British person would try to describe a cat so seriously. Mm. Where, like, something that's normally seen as trivial is given, like, a sincere lyrical gravitas. Because it's really difficult to capture the spirit of an animal, particularly one that has a, that is, like, a pet so it has a relationship to a person without sounding like twee yeah or like a bit facile but i think like what she's doing here that's very genius is that she's using like catisms and cat ownerisms that are very recognizable like almost meme like mm-hmm. but she isn't coasting on that she's like really given time on the page to rendering saha as a character mm-hmm. she's not just like a plot device yeah and that delighted me <laughs> but I also love that it's a testament to the fact that even like 50 years before the internet was a thing, people just really fucking loved cats. 
Yeah. So much that they would write about them. Like, <laughs> how endearing is that? <laughs> and I actually did a deep dive on Colette after reading this because I wanted to see if there was any photos of her with her cats because you know she had cats. Yeah. And I found some absolutely cracking ones, so I will share them okay. on the socials. great. And when I found them, I remembered the only other time that I felt that this, like, cat lady kinship with a writer. <laughs> and it was with Eve Babbitts mm. in her book Eve's Hollywood. I don't know if you remember the photo that she includes in her book of her cat. Oh, I don't remind me. But please. I'll show you it. So for anyone that doesn't know, Eve Babbitts was a writer in LA in the 70s. And Eve's Hollywood is a sort of fictional memoir. It's of, so good. It's so good. I will probably do an episode on it at one yeah. point. Of her growing up at that time. So yeah, I'll just show Emily that's... That's her cat. Oh, so she's included yeah, yeah. her cat in like the photos inside the book, which I think is really sweet. So yeah, I thought it was really like humanizing that she included Rosie, her cat, because her memoir is quite glamorous. And it's like, oh, she does actually have a domestic life mm-hmm. at home. The photos go with a two-page chapter of the same name. And since it's so short, I thought I'd just read it out. Because nice. we're on a cat. <laughs> a cat thing now. So this is a chapter by Eve Babbitt's called Rosie. The cat I had most of my adult life so far committed suicide last summer and we buried her under the apricot tree in the back of my parents' house. Whatever it was about Rosie, to untangle it would take me years of therapy and study of ancient scriptures and it wasn't until I was on mescaline that I made a pilgrimage out to the backyard to think about Rosie. There, growing from the spot where we buried her three feet under, were weeds, not rose bowers, just weeds. I had to laugh. What else could grow from Rosie's heart but weeds? She came to me in New York, given to me one day by a poet who'd gotten the mother cat from Frank O'Hara. The mother cat had three kittens. One died very young of a cranial hemorrhage. One is in Arizona with the Fugs ex-drummer's ex-old lady Betsy. And the third was Rosie, who stood in front of a car once and for all this last July. Poor Rosie. Almost the whole first year of her life was spent in my tiny New York apartment, where she never saw any other creature except me. So on me falls the blame for her unimaginably ghastly personality, unless it's her fault, I don't know. <laughs> I named her Rosie Nosy and hoped she'd act accordingly. But she never got over anything, least of all her one-room childhood. By the time she grew up and I was living back in California, my life as projected by me looked like at least another 12 years, because she was healthy and sometimes cats live as much as 17 years even, of being paired with this animal Rosie. For one thing, I could never have friends who had any animals of their own because Rosie went completely insane if any other furry came close. Most of all a dog. But cats made her sick too. And who could I give her to? She bit company and no one liked her. Even people who loved cats couldn't stand Rosie. She was foul-tempered and would complain with a Siamese voice about everything always. The Frank O'Hara mother was Siamese. So my future looked spinsterish, though I was, at the start, only 24. Why, one might ask, didn't I just get rid of her? Why and how did she get away with everything? Well, for one thing, she had a stomach so white that peaking snow peas couldn't have come from any place purer. She'd lie on her back and tempt you irresistibly to touch her gorgeous stomach. And when you did that, she had you with all four claws and all her teeth. But the main fact that everyone, even those who abhorred her and kicked her when I wasn't looking, was the fact of her face. She had the most beautiful face on a cat I ever saw. Her nose was rose petal pink and her eyes were cat green, but half her face was orange and the other half was grey striped, 
and she was so beautiful that when she stretched out on the windowsill in the sun, you knew that you'd never understand anything, but that you might as well take what you could get. And what I got was Rosie. On Formosa, the cars screamed by killing small children and dogs and cats, and Rosie never got run over. It wasn't until we moved to my parents' house in a very quiet, residential, hilly part of Hollywood, where the cars go 10 miles per hour, that she finally decided to end it all after seven years of life. The thing was, I couldn't feel bad for her. She wasn't nice. Next time I get a cat, it's going to be from a pound, and it's going to be grateful even if I give it friskies, not the liver I used to give Rosie, who'd then look up at me and say in her Siamese disdain, What, liver? You Again, you resourceless bitch. Please. Which were the last words she said to me before she walked out the back door. Oh, that's so funny, but so sad. I know. I love the difference, but also the similarities. Yeah, yeah. Everyone knows that cats think you're a bitch. Yeah. Um, I love that bit about, like, she shows you, like, her stomach and you go and pet her and then she's just got you by all the claws and the teeth. All the teeth, Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I don't really have anything to say about that except I too feel a life of spinsterhood and catness and mm. I'm alright with it. Yeah. <laughs> I love my cat ladies and I love my cat. Oh, I enjoyed that. <laughs> so, how's writing been going for you this week? I've not done a huge amount of my own writing this week so I don't really have like my own kind of topic today but I actually have some wise words from an author that I thought I would just share Mm -hmm. instead of so I followed Isabel Ibanez on Instagram when I talked about her book Woven in Moonlight on Mm -hmm. here and she posted this not that long ago which I thought was one just like a nice little story and two maybe some useful words for fellow writers so this caption accompanies it's like a photo of a manuscript and i'm just going to read it out to you cool my sweet friend katie sent me this photo as she's in the process of moving we met when we were 14 went to high school together and she was one of the first people outside of my family who knew i wanted to be a writer this is the very first book i ever finished writing over 10 years ago she had printed out several versions of the map maker of merville and kept the pages for over a decade. It must be noted that in those 11-ish years, she moved to a new state, changed apartments three times, and is now taking the pages with her to New York. Like, I don't have words, and I'm supposed to because I'm a writer. But seriously, no words for this brand of affection and loyalty and support. I haven't read this story in a decade, but I remember the highlights. A YA fantasy set in Spain with dragons and an island not found on any map. Guys, I'm probably never going to rework or revisit this story, but it taught me so much. I learned how to tell a story. A really awful story, but still. And yet this book is, essentially, dead to me. Or so I thought. Because 11-ish years later, I wrote and sold a book inspired by medieval Spain and about dragons. It's funny how ideas and inspiration stay with us, how they transform when given enough time to marinate. If you're lamenting a book that you've tucked away, never to be seen again, don't worry. Parts of that story might follow you into another world, another book, and the original idea might be better for it. Or your friend might text you a photo of a manuscript when you're 11 years older and remind you that you've always wanted to write a story inspired by medieval Spain with dragons. (laughs) Sometimes ideas take time, 
They usually do for me, but I think I realise how important it is to draw inspiration from the things you love. Things that interest you. Those elements that first spark to your imagination. I think it's wise to be aware of the market and plan accordingly, but I'm wary of chasing trends. They are fickle monsters, constantly changing and hard to control. Write what brings you joy. I love that. I know, it's so sweet. I love that line about ideas having time to marinate. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And yeah, it's true, like, you know this, but I wrote a novel when I was, like, 15 or 16. (laughs) Novel in quotation marks. (laughs) And it was, like, really, like, gothic and supernaturally inspired and, like, the setting was inspired by Castlecombe, which is this tiny, like, sleepy English village, which is where they filmed Stardust. Ah, And over the years, I just kind of forgot about it. But it's funny now because I can see elements of it in the writing that I do now. Mm. I mean, I like to think the writing in the story is miles better. But it's funny how, like, even 10 years ago, I was coming up with, like, elements of things that I still write about now. Definitely. Um, So I just wanted to ask you if you've had that happen yourself. Is there Um, anything you can kind of think of? Well, when I was really little, well, like... 10 or 11 like before I was even a teenager Mm. I started a novel that was now I realize magic realism which is what my current novel is yeah which I've just realized right now (laughs) um it was about I think it it did have a cat it was a sort of I really liked Sailor Moon and her like magic cat yeah so I think it was a sort of like this cat like appears from nowhere and like it was very meme like a cat appears and gives you a quest (laughs) um but it wasn't overtly magical, there were no spells, but I definitely in my head was like, I'm not going to explain why this happens, it just does. Which yeah. is the exact logic that I apply to all my storytelling yeah. now. And later, when I was a teenager, I wrote little short stories. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess I wrote like a lot of fan fiction. Not smart. But I wrote, <laughs> I wrote like actual, like, I'd take characters from shows and then I'd like... Mm-hmm. I think what I always struggle with is character, so I liked to take characters and like really try and replicate what they were like yeah. in the show. Yeah, me and my like friends would all we would kind of like write as like a group, mm-hmm. and we would do like fan fiction kind or like take characters that like yeah. we knew, and like we would like put them in new scenarios and stuff. Well, me and my friend did that. We took like each like a female character from a show we really liked, mm-hmm. and like we wanted to make them interact, and they didn't interact that much in the show, mm-hmm. so we were like. I really feel like I understand this character. You really feel like you understand that character. Yeah. Let's write how they yeah. would talk to each other. We would do fun. like our our original characters as well. Yeah. Like we would have our original characters like interact with each other. So ah. like, but like mine was obviously like very like magically like I had like demons and stuff and like but I'd have them chatting to like my friends who just had like a very normal like yeah. you know just teenage drama <laughs> type <laughs> book, but they would be having a conversation like. Yeah, so yeah. I think, like, I've not really had, like, the plot points from anything that I wrote when I was younger mm-hmm. come back, or, like, necessarily the images, but I think very much, like, my attitude and my style of writing came from that, and that's never really left me. Yeah. I've been, like, yeah, I, I learned, like, what I like to write and the way that I like to approach mm-hmm. it. Yeah, that's very good advice, right? What brings you joy? Yes, definitely. Thank you, Isabel. (laughs) How has your writing been this week? Well, obviously I had my good writing news this week. Yes. But as for actually writing, I thought I'd be dead truthful and say this week, all I've written is one really good line. (laughs) I was in the shower, I was thinking about nothing in particular, and then it was like, you know when you have 
I think this is just what inspiration actually is. But you know mm. when it's like loads of background thoughts and mm-hmm. motifs that have just been kind of around. Mm-hmm. And then they just distill down instantly into one really good phrase. Yeah. And like I got out of the shower and I wrote it down. And now I'm scared to go back to it. <laughs> and this is a dilemma. I thought I'd talk about this because I have this dilemma all the time. When I get like a nugget of inspiration and I'm like, that's amazing. Yeah. And then I'm scared to use it in case it turns out that like that idea sucks or like I mm. can't I can't do it justice. Yeah. Like, I was definitely the type of child that would buy stickers and then not stick them anywhere. Because I <laughs> yeah. was, like, scared that that wouldn't be the right place and then yeah. the stickiness would be gone and I would have wasted it. So, like, I guess what I've been reflecting on is, like, words are not adhesive-backed. <laughs> Just write the idea. Mm-hmm. And if, like, it's not great, you can write it again. Yeah. And I do wonder a little bit, though, if moments like this are why... Insta poetry or very short, like Rupi Kaur esque poetry is so widely written now. Mm. Because part of me wonders, like, if I just put a couple of good returns in my one good line, would it stand up on its own? Yeah. And I struggle with that idea because for me as a writer, that wouldn't have any artistic integrity. Mm-hmm. Like, that would feel like cheating for me. Yeah. But I see artistic merit in other people that are doing that. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know. It's interesting. What do you do with a good line? I know. It's a hard one. I feel I just have like so many like good lines written down and it's just I'm like one day I'm gonna use it. Yeah. But you're right, like I should just use it. Yeah. Like <laughs> You should just use it to start something. To start something, than yeah. Find a place and like to I, I do in. do that. Like yeah. I often get like I have like a really good line when I'm dreaming. Yeah. And I end up waking up and I like immediately write it down and I'm like, that's so good. And then I'm looking at it later, I'm like, that's gibberish. Yeah. <laughs> like I wrote I can't remember what it was, but I wrote one down about like a chair. And I was like, I remember waking up and still in that very groggy state and being like, Oh, that's so poetic. And I looked at it later and I was like, What? What does that mean? <laughs> one day we should do an episode where we just go through our notes at. Oh, that would be so funny. <sighs> yeah, let's do that. We'll do that. But, um, yeah, so I don't know what I'm going to... I always feel like, as well, when I get a really good line, I want it to be my last line. I want it to be, like, a mic drop, and I don't know all the things that are going to come before it. Or the first line sometimes as well. But, yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. Anyway, that's my writing Mm. chat. Interesting. Do you have a quick fire favourite this week? I do. So I have a YouTube video. Oh. It is by Lisa Eldridge and it is 1000 Year Old Makeup and Other Stories. So this is a 40 minute video filled with loads of really interesting makeup history lessons. That's so cool. So Lisa Eldridge, for anyone who doesn't know, is a very well respected makeup artist. She's creative director of Lancome Makeup. And Lily Collins, who's one of my favourite actresses, is one of the faces of Lancome. So she often does Lily's makeup Mm. for like shoots and like red carpets and stuff. She's a total boss and I've watched her YouTube videos for years because She's great at, like, teaching you how to do makeup. Like, she does, like, tutorials and stuff, which are quite good for, you know, if you're not really, like, confident in makeup, mm. she she teaches you very well. But I actually like watching her because she has so much knowledge about makeup history. Mm. And she's an avid makeup collector. Okay. And in this video, she shares about 50 items in, from her extensive collection, and she tells us all about them. It might kind of 
go without saying but this isn't just like a, oh look at this pretty thing mm. I've got it's like she's collected makeup products which contain a bit of history yeah her oldest product is a ceramic powder compact from China and it's a thousand years old that's insane and still contains traces of the powder in it which is like full of lead because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. obviously yeah she she also explains in the video how makeup rules like changed throughout the years so for example makeup was only ever worn on stage Mm. and so she explains how companies then had to change their marketing to push for real women to use it Mm. and like loads like just interesting stuff like that that sounds cool so i actually just like listed a bunch of stuff that i really liked from it this is not a quick fire favorite (laughs) apologies but yeah one that i loved was she talked about wartime makeup it's like 1940s And the packaging was being downgraded because of a lack of materials. Mm-hmm. So all the packaging is very simple, but women were being encouraged to wear makeup as a sign of patriotism. So the business was still booming. Yeah. The marketing campaigns were like, put your war face on. Oh, and the, man. And there is like, um, like Elizabeth Arden had like a red um, lipstick that was like known as like the wartime like lipstick. And then Lisa then goes on to describe makeup post-war which she describes as uber feminine and like performance pieces Mm. so women had been working throughout the war obviously and were then being told to go back to being like housewives yeah it's like 50s Mm -hmm. and so makeup compacts and other products were over the top Mm. so that when you use them in public you're announcing to everyone like the woman you wanted to be yeah so like 50s is when all the like gold packaging came in and like you know like really pretty like ornate like mirrors and mm-hmm. um, like fancy lipstick holders and stuff like that. There's a really good episode of Mad Men. Obviously, it's fictional, but it's based. On, it's all based on real ad campaigns, yeah. and I think it's for um. Oh, I can't. I can't remember. It's one of the big lipstick brands, but it was the Mark Your Man campaign. Oh yeah. Where it's yeah. like it's the episode is them coming up with that, mm-hmm. but like it's just so interesting to see the yeah. psychology. Well, that's like exactly what this video is about. Yeah, she, she has a compact that was designed by Salvador Dali, and what? it's gaudy and gorgeous. It looks like a bird, and the head pulls out to be a red lipstick, and the wings open out to be like a powder compact and mirror. That's ridiculous. Yeah, and she says that's like the holy grail for vintage makeup collectors, and she has it. <laughs> Is this woman British or American? British. Okay. Yeah. Or actually, she may have been born in like New Zealand or something, but she's okay. based, um, based in England. Mm-hmm. She also talked about a product I've already watched the videos of hers on and it's a lipstick holder designed by Cartier Right. and it was owned by Audrey Hepburn and it still has some of her lipstick in it. I've heard about this. Yeah. I've heard about this exactly. So yeah, Lisa Eldridge is the one who owns it. That's so cool. And yeah, she has a whole video on that which I recommend as well because she tells the whole story of like how she came to get it. And she even, like, tries some of it on Mm. so she can, like, see what lipstick Audrey would have worn. But, yeah, the thing I loved about this video was that Lisa explains that she loves collecting vintage makeup, not just because she loves the history of makeup, but also because she gets inspired by, like, all the colours and textures and materials for, like, her own stuff, Mm. uh, both for Lancome and for, like, she has her own uh, line of lipsticks. Right. And also she likes to imagine the woman who would have worn it so, for example, she owns a pair of false eyelashes from the 1930s, mm-hmm. which are still in perfect condition because, mm-hmm. like, the woman really cared for them. And she says she imagines the woman who, like, took such great care of them because they would have been a luxury for her. Yeah. 
and she wonders like where would she have worn them would it have been like to a dance like would she have been proposed to in them like i just think that's so lovely yeah there is something to be said for like a physical artifact of anything you're passionate about definitely and yeah i know i've talked for ages but it's such a good video and i think like we need to sit and like watch it because you will definitely love it you basically get like a whole makeup history lesson with all these like fun stories and facts and that's so um, cool. I mean, yeah, you love Mad Men, so you'd probably like all the marketing talk mm-hmm. that they do because she talks a lot about the advertising. And yeah, she was very clear that this is only a tiny part of her collection, so I hope she does more instalments of it. Yeah. It's very good. Yeah, something a bit different for, for you guys. That's so cool. We should watch that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So yeah, what's your quickfire favourite? My quickfire favourite this week is an EP. Um, that I ended up downloading after you recommended one of the songs to me. Yeah. The EP and the song, actually, is called Pomegranate Seeds. It's by Julian Moon. And Emily recommended me the title track because it is, obviously, Pomegranate Seeds. It is about Persephone. Yeah. Who Emily knows is my favourite Greek myth character Mm -hmm. after our extensive Greek myth chat. (laughs) Just quickly, I'll do the Persephone myth for anyone that doesn't know. Cool. Persephone was picking flowers in a field. Hades liked the look of her and dragged her down to hell. He made her eat six pomegranate seeds, so she was bound to him forever. And then he bargained with her mother, Demeter, to let her visit Earth a few months a year, which is how we get summer. That's a very condensed version. <laughs> um, I'm not going to get into the did Hades rape Persephone or not debate. Yep. Anyway, song is sick. The riff of the song is just so rocky, it's so tight, it's very upbeat and fun, but it's like got all these really cool as fuck images with like thrones and hell and crowns made of bones. It's mm-hmm. just so cool. The whole EP is beautiful. There's a song called Siren Song. Yeah, I knew that one before I knew really? Pomegranate Seeds, yeah. Which is like very angry feminist vibes, um, which I love. And then there's a song called Sweeter the Heart, which is very soft. And it kind of captured my entire philosophy on life about like being open to experiences mm. all the time. Like the first line is, "I'm learning heartbreak is the price of admission. Don't resist it if you want to keep living." Mm. I just think that's so nice. That is nice. But anyway, so I really recommend the EP for anyone that wants some new music in their life. But a fun fact about the song "Pomegranate Seeds" that I thought you might be interested mm-hmm. in, which weirdly threads into an analysis of a Louise Glock poem that I did. Oh, okay, yeah. So, you know, we're all very on theme this week. (laughs) In the bridge, the song kind of breaks down into a chant, and it sounds like it's saying, like, Cora, Cora, Fauna and Flora, where Mm -hmm. did you get your throne? And it sounds like it's saying Cora as in Mm C-O-R-A. But I know from my essay (laughs) that Persephone was known by the ancient Greeks as the Cora. Yeah. K-O-R-E. Yeah. And for anyone that doesn't know, the Cora, according to myth scholar Laura Weeks, was a divinity whose being summed up their vision of a woman's existence. And Weeks says that in her purest form she is Persephone, the moment that she's the moment before she's abducted by Hades, where she's like out of sight of her mother and therefore she's not like the daughter, but she hasn't entered the state of the wife. She's just like a girl in the meadow. Mm-hmm. So Cora, Cora, Fauna and Flora. So I just thought that was cool. I think it's cool when you have a song that's done its homework. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and that's a little fun fact that you might not know. Is yeah. that it's an ancient Greek word for a maiden. Nice. Yeah, no, I, I'm compiling like a Greek mythology playlist at the moment. And so I went to add 
Siren song because I knew that song and mm. then I saw she had one called Pomegranate Seeds. I was like, well, this has to be <laughs> about Persephone. Yeah. Listen to it. And I was immediately like, Rebecca will like this. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I was like, I've been listening to it all week. It's just so... Oh. It's like most songs that are about myths and stuff are like very epic and quite yeah. um, chamber pop. Yeah. But this is just so rocky. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's taken me a long time to make the playlist because I don't like a lot of the songs that are about Greek myth for that kind of reason. Yeah. So I'm being very selective with the ones I actually put on the playlist. Because when I make a playlist, like, I don't just make it, like, I don't know. I think some people just, like, make them as, like, a compilation of this is all the Greek myth songs, whereas I'm like, no, I want to actually, like, listen to it and enjoy it. Yeah, this is the ones I like. Yeah, so I'm being very selective, but that one is definitely on it. So yeah, and that was my not so quick quick fire favorite. Thank <laughs> you. Do you have a rant for us this week? I do. This rant was going to be called "Why the fuck do inkjet printers still exist?" Yeah. <laughs> because as you know, we spent about an hour yesterday faffing with the two inkjet printers in our home yes. to try and get one document to print. But I actually think that everyone knows how shit printers are. Yes. And that feels a bit like a Rod Gilbert bit. <laughs> so instead, my rant is going to be this. Girls should fix things more. Okay. Or rather, more girls should fix things. So this is probably totally personal to me and totally anecdotal. But something that I have observed in my life <laughs> is that while girls are very urged to know how to do certain things in case of an emergency... Like, we're very urged to know how to defend ourselves if we had to. Mm. Or, like, change a tyre or change a fuse or whatever. We're very rarely encouraged to habitually do these things or habitually fix stuff. So I've been very lucky in my life that I've had my dad about and he's been very handy. But it's meant that I've come to rely on him and men generally or just other people, other more capable women, Mm -hmm. for a lot of things that actually if I wasn't in the habit of farming them out, are not difficult and they're quite fun. Mm. So, for example, yesterday, I took the printer apart and I cleaned the wee light box bit and I put it all back together. And there was screws and there was fiddly bits. I was very scared that somehow I was going to break it, even though it was completely straightforward, because I've just not done that type of thing a lot. Yeah. And I'm always scared that I'm going to damage things, like electronics or mechanical things. But actually, machines are very simple. And I feel like boys don't have the same apprehension Mm. because even if they don't know how to fix something, they're taught from a very young age about handling tools and like investigating things with tools. Yeah. And they just have a lot more confidence to bring to it. Like, I'll never forget one of my exes said that he'd never changed a light bulb and he'd never chopped down a tree, but he was pretty confident he could do either (laughs) because he'd built a computer. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) So like... I don't know. I think my own, like, internalised misogyny always just made it that I was happy to go along with that dynamic because I was like, well, I'm not interested in having to fix things. So Mm. I don't mind that this is a thing in my life that men do for me. Yeah. But actually, this year, I've worked with tools a lot since I've been at home and I've done a fair bit of DIY and actually I love it. (laughs) And it's really satisfying to do and it's really hard to fuck things up. Mm. Like, it's much harder to fuck it up than you would think. Mm. So I guess my rant is like, don't allow people to gatekeep the toolbox. There is no secret 
to fixing stuff. They don't know things that you don't know. I'm not talking about, like, joiners and plumbers, by the way. They definitely know things <laughs> that we don't know. Yeah. But just general fixy things in your house. Everyone's just using YouTube and, like, figuring it out. So, like, the next time something breaks, just try fixing it. Google a YouTube tutorial. It's really satisfying. I'd recommend. <laughs> <laughs> and this is from someone that's, like, notoriously clumsy and loses things. Yeah. So if I can do it, you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> we're all about the female empowerment today. We are. We're very into the female empowerment. Do you have an insight today? I do. I have another quiz from Penguin today. Oh, exciting. So for this quiz, you find out which literary character you are. And I think it's like classic literary characters. And I know it's not very like woo-woo magic <laughs> like I normally do for this segment. <laughs> but I quite liked my answer, so I wanted to see yours. Okay. So I've already done mine, so I'll just read out my result and then yeah. like, you can take the test and I'll read yours out. It's quite a quick one. Fun. So the answer I got is Jane Eyre. Obviously. Yeah. Your self-possession is worthy of envy. Very few people have such a well-balanced commitment to cultivating both their intellectual and emotional lives. This justified sense of self-worth is not egotism because through it you see the dignity and worth of others. Your method of making a social impact is like your approach to self-improvement in that you find realistic ways to create lasting change. While you may loathe the idea of idle fancy, make sure you find the time to indulge in frivolous fun every now and then. That's very you. <laughs> yeah. That whole bit about like you having a very strong sense of self and like cultivating it. Yeah, is I very think you. that is true. Right, I'll read out. I'll read out the questions. Oh, okay. Because that's that's a fun thing. You lend one of your favourite books to a friend. It is returned with a cracked spine, dog-eared pages, and chicken scratch marginalia. Do you address the issue? And my answer is going to be no. Who cares? What's one book between old friends? Because I'll. <laughs> That live. was not my answer. No, it wouldn't have been. <laughs> but I love, I love a lived-in book. No, so. I do like a lived-in book. To be fair, but I like it when I do it, not when someone does it to my property. Well, it depends. Like if I, yeah, <laughs> don't like deface the whole thing. But I don't mind a little, yeah. a little margin note. Your favorite living author walks past you on the sidewalk. How do you react? Mm, I would probably politely ask for a photo and an autograph. Mm. I'm not gonna lie. Take your chances when you get them, people. <laughs> Inexplicably, your favourite dead author walks past you. How do you react? The answers for this are really funny. I, I would engage them in conversation because I don't see a downside. I would follow the author respectfully to find out how they are. <laughs> I would see if they need anything since being dislocated in time would be difficult. I would leave them alone as nothing good can come from being curious. <laughs> I would share my love for my work and say how good they look for that age. <laughs> I think I would engage them in conversation because I don't see a downside. Yeah. You absentmindedly open a package that was addressed to your neighbour and discover a highly sought after first edition. Do you return the package? Mm. I think I'd go with yes, I would return the package with a note of explanation and a bottle of wine. That's what I went for. Because... Yeah, that just seems like my style. And then I'd hoped that they would let me read it. Yeah, exactly, because you gave them wine. So yeah. I put in my note, like... I really like this. I really like this. <laughs> also, like, imagine you had a neighbour. Oh my god, that's the start of a rom-com. You, you, like, get, <laughs> yeah. you get your neighbour's, like, package that's the first edition of a book that you really like and you, like, hand it back and you're like, oh man, this is so cool. Where did you get this? And they're like, I have a whole library of first editions. This is Beauty and the Beast. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Not only did you forget that book club is at your house, you didn't even read the book. Lol, same. <laughs> what did you, what do you do? I would be upfront about it and would focus on making everyone comfortable. I also said that. Just get people snacks and be like, I've not read this book, but y'all go but ahead. But you can talk about it. Yeah. I'll just listen. <laughs> your best friend reveals that they wrote a novel. You're the first to read it and you hate it. <laughs> oh, how do you respond? Can I just say, the questions in this are so good. Yeah. Like, normally, you know, like, what character are you? They're so boring. It's like, what do you prefer, like, chips or crisps? But, like, yeah. this has some very interesting philosophical <laughs> questions. I think I'll go with, I'd ask if they'd like my help. If so, I'd offer critiques. If not, I'd let it go. I think that's what I said as because well. Because the other ones, like, I, I don't feel like, like, if I hated your book, if I straight up was like, <laughs> I hate this. Yeah. It would be, like, I think I would know whether it was my personal taste isn't this or I think she can write better than this. Yeah. And if I thought it was, like, I don't think this is your best work, I would say, yeah. do you want me to yes. tell you what I would do? Yeah. And if you were like, nah, I'd be like, cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you discover that a family member has been stealing books from the library. <laughs> They inform you that they are only taking books that haven't been checked out recently. How do you react? This is such a weird question. I know, I don't know. No one in my family would read, so I'm like, what? I don't know what I responded to that one. I can't remember. Um, I like to think, like, because I really believe in libraries, right? So it's wrong yes. to steal from libraries. But realistically, with my personality, I'd probably be like, yeah, if no one else is reading them, get me some. <laughs> Your favourite novel is being adapted for film. The film's director says he made the plot changes that will make the story more accessible to a new audience. How will you feel? I think I'd try to not pass judgement and hold out hope that the adaptation is excellent. I think I either did that or is there not one that's like you hope that it will make people want to read yeah. the original? I can't remember what I picked, but it's either one of those two. I think like we've talked about adaptation enough that like we both are very sound in our minds that like the book and the film are not the same thing. Yeah, so. yeah definitely you can still have an excellent adaptation, even if it's different. Yeah. You open an email and realise that it's not for you. The manuscript is for the year's most hotly anticipated novel. Assuming you will experience no repercussions, <laughs> what will you do? I'm going to read out the answers for this because they're so funny. Yeah. I won't leak it, but I'll still put out feelers in case I could make money from it. <laughs> I would immediately respond and let the sender know I didn't open the attachment. I would read the manuscript out of curiosity but would not tell anyone. I would neither read it nor share it because I'm not interested. I'd leak the book but not before I revise the text so the protagonist dies. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would probably read it but I don't think I would leak it. Yeah, I would read it and not tell anyone. Yeah. That's what I did. Cool. Because obviously. Yeah. Right, so I've got to the end. <gasps> what did I get? You've got one of my favourite characters. You've got Pip from Great Expectations. Oh! Tell me about me. While you likely don't possess the greed and snobbery of Pip as a young adult, you do expect a lot from yourself. Your intelligence is fierce, but not remote, because your passions are incompatible with abstract, idle contemplation. You take action and throw yourself into even the most challenging tasks with abandon, determined to reach your goal. Your dedication and vision will take you far. However, be careful not to let your ambition override your conscience. If you're careful to occasionally slow down and appreciate the less flashy but ultimately more rewarding aspects of life, you'll have an even richer understanding of your personal sense of success. I'll take that. I like Pip. Pip's a good one. So, <laughs> I mean, he's 
you know, he's got flaws, but <laughs> I mean, I like Pip. I I think that expecting a lot from yourself is fine. Yeah. So. Well, that um, was good. They they were both quite accurate. Yeah, I would say. Well done, Penguin. <laughs> Very thoughtful questions from Penguin. I know. So we have a question this week. We do. It's my turn to get a question this week. And we have one from our friend Rhiannon. Oh, thanks Rhiannon. Who always shouts out the podcast. Thank you, Rhiannon. And she has asked us, how early in a draft do you send it to someone slash each other? Like first drafts or do you polish it entirely? Hmm. It's a hard one. Like, I think it depends what you're wanting out of it. Yeah. Because if you're wanting help with it, then you would send quite an early draft. Mm Mm-hmm. But if it's more of a, what do you think of this? Then yeah. I would maybe wait until I'd done a few more drafts of it. I think, yeah, like I, it's hard for me because I think I've spoken about this before, but my drafts are never first drafts. Yeah, yeah. Like by the time that I've got a coherent narrative, it's already the third or fourth draft. Mm-hmm. So I'm usually then, once I've got a piece that I think someone could read coherently, I, I'm quite happy to send it to someone and just be like, hey, what do you think of this? Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it is, like, with poetry it's different. Like, I'll quite often send Hamza things that are just fragments mm-hmm. and be like, what does this make you think of? Or, like, like I want input. And yeah, like, yeah. what do you think of this? Like, do you think this has potential? Like, does a bit of, like, does this bit suck or is it genius? Like, yeah. should I pursue this type yeah. thing? But with stories, like, with prose, yeah, I probably wait yeah i think as well like when i don't send my work out as much as you do to people but like i whenever i do send it i always send it with a caveat and i'm always like this is what i want yeah like not what i want you to tell me but you know what i mean it's like am i looking for help with this yeah am i just wanting you to tell me what you think mm-hmm. like do i want guidance on what direction it should go in do i um, just really want a cheerleader like, yeah, I just want someone, do. yeah, to sometimes be like, like, oh, this is good, mm-hmm. or because I, I like showed you like the start of my novel, and I like you said very lovely things about it. Thank you. <laughs> but I kind of want to send it to my friends Alice and Hannah because they are English students, but they don't know my creative writing at all. Yeah, and I kind of want to send it to them to just get a t- like an outside perspective, but someone who still knows English. Yeah. I think we talked about this a while ago, like, you kind of have different people to send different stuff. Yeah, like, I'll, like, me and my friend Lyndon will send each other finished chapters Mm -hmm. once they're finished, just to be like, but it's because we're fans of each other's stories, Mm -hmm. so it's almost like a little, like, preview thing. It's just like, oh, I wrote this, and like... It's not necessarily about, like, the writing. It's not about the writing, it's not about the editing, it's just for, like, the fun of it. It's like, oh, I wrote this, like, this is what this character's up to, and we, like, swap that, and that's fun. But, yeah, I think, yeah, it just depends what you're wanting out of it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just want to get it outside of your own computer. Oh, yeah, definitely. To be like, this needs seen by other people. Yeah. I know, I was quite glad when I sent mine to you, because I feel like because you know when you've not sent anything like or you you've written I, I've put a lot of time into it but no yeah. one else has read it and I'm like have I just wasted my time <laughs> like <laughs> is it stupid <laughs> but then it feels good to have someone be like no like there's potential in this yeah definitely um, so so yeah we kind of don't really have an answer Rhiannon, don't really have but, an answer, but yeah. I guess like if if someone wanted an actual like 
concrete answer to what I think that should be. I'd say send something as early as possible to someone you trust Mm -hmm. and ask for what you want. I agree with that. Also, Rhiannon, I want to read your stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Please send some to me. (laughs) Right. Is that us? I think that's us. Okay. Our Halloween episode is the next one. Look forward to some spooky stories. Yeah. I'm very excited about it. I don't know if Rebecca's as excited as I am. I don't, I don't live for Halloween in the same way that Emily <laughs> lives for Halloween. But I like it. Um, and I'm excited to see Emily get all spooky. Yeah, so. I think it'll be a fun episode. If you have any comments or questions for us, email infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We have social media, which... Should we say some stuff that we're doing on there now, seeing as we have actual stuff to say? We have actual stuff to say. So we started Fleeting Fancies, which every week uh, one of us is going to just share all the stuff on our Instagram stories that we found that week. Yeah, that we're just, like, into. So I've already done mine. I think yours will be up by the time this episode is out. So you'll have two weeks worth of stuff to catch up on. Yeah. On the Twitter, I've started doing hints for the episodes in GIF form, which is very fun for me because I enjoy a good GIF. Go on, someone, please guess it so that it brings her even more joy. Yeah, because no one reacted to my hint. (laughs) (laughs) Well, people liked it, but no one actually guessed anything. Yeah, so. so come on, guess. I think you should. You might have some live content. Yes, we are considering, We're considering some live, live streams. streams. We don't know what they would be. They might just be us drunk. Yeah. So if you have any like suggestions on what we should do, please let us know. Oh, because... if there's like games and stuff we could do. Yeah, games. That like, are related to books or films or anything. Yeah, definitely. Or even just like a bunch of questions. Yeah, if like... there's like, a good question game that you have, send it to us. Yep. We'll play that. Yeah, that'll be fun. And we are like I feel like pe- we are like best best mates, but we still find things like almost every day that we don't know. About <laughs> yeah, each other. definitely. So I feel like a question <laughs> game could be really hilarious. Yeah, I think so. Or like maybe like a like newlywed style game or something oh could God, be quite funny. Because so fun. we have lived together for like t- two two years two years, but we've known each other for like five ish. I think five. Five five years so yeah i will say as well like you guys ask such good book questions for us but we will take any question (laughs) like we're just happy to talk about ourselves (laughs) and yeah so come and join us for halloween for spooky season and we hope that you enjoyed this and if there's anything else you want us to do hit us up on socials yes and everything we talked about will be in the description as always and we will make sure to get those statues up on the Instagram Instagram because they're very cool and those cat pictures and the cat pictures obviously (laughs) (laughs) because we know the content that you really want (laughs) and I think that's us that's us see you later Bye. bye some versions of the meme came with an oh my god I cannot talk today some versions of the meme came with an accompanying. Is that right? Accompanying text.
Oh no! Right. I think it's because it's an accompanying. It's just. It's. I'm just gonna say 